0: Let's pray together. Well, Father, we ask that you would do the same for us here and now as you did for them, then and there. Please reveal Jesus to us. By your spirit and your word, help us to see Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you've heard the one about the frog who goes into a bank to get a bank loan. Uh, if you have heard it, I'm sorry, because you're going to hear it again. Uh, if you haven't heard it, here's how it goes. So a frog goes into a bank to get a bank loan, and he walks in, and he meets the lady at the counter, and she's wearing a name tag, and it says Whack on it. I think her name's Miss, Miss Whack. And And the frog says to her, excuse me, I'd like a loan. And she goes, I can't give you a loan. You're a frog. And he said, yes, I would like a loan, please, uh, for my lily pad. And she looks at him and says, I'm sorry. This is. What's your name? And the frog says, the name's Kermit. And she goes, you're not Kermit the frog. And he goes, no, 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 no. The name's Kermit Jagger. My father is Mick Jagger. My mother is a frog, and I would like to have a loan. And she looks at him and says, I just don't think we can make this work, but fine. Do you have any collateral? And he reaches into his pocket and pulls out this, like this shiny pink thing. It's like a little elephant. And, uh, and he hands it to her, and she looks at it, and she goes, let me, let me go talk to my manager. Let me see. So she goes and finds her manager, and uh, I think her name's Patty. And and she says to the manager, there's this frog out there. He says the name's Kermit Jagger. And he wants to get a loan. And he has this little thing. And the manager looks at it and goes, what is this? And he goes, oh, it's a knick-knack, paddy-whack. Give the frog a loan. His old man's a rolling stone. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Now, let's analyze this joke for a moment. One of the many ridiculous things about this joke, and there are many ridiculous things about that joke, one of the many ridiculous things is that frogs don't go into banks to get loans. Frogs don't do that. Frogs do what frogs do. Frogs are frogs. Frogs can't lose their frogginess. Zebras can't lose their stripes. Wolves can't become shepherds. Or can they? Or can they? Can a wolf become a shepherd? Can a persecutor of Christians become an apostle? Can a fire-breathing beast become a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's preposterous. It's laughable. It's hilarious. Or is it? Or is the grace of God so amazing? Is the power of the resurrection so strong? Is the light of Jesus Christ so blazingly bright that enemies of God can become his friends? That dead people can come to life? That those who are opposed to God can be transformed by God? This is what we see all throughout the book of Acts. That's why we're preaching sermons on the book of Acts during this season of Easter. And that's what we see today in Acts chapter nine, the conversion of Saul. And when we meet Saul, Saul is doing what Saul does, and that's to persecute Christians. And not only to persecute them, but to hunt them down. And that's what he's on a mission to do today when we see him. He's on a mission to Damascus to hunt down Christians to arrest them, tie them up, and bring them back to Jerusalem. And it's on this road to Damascus, when a persecutor is doing what a persecutor does, when a hunter is doing what a hunter does, when a wolf is doing what a wolf does when he encounters the resurrected Jesus, and nothing is ever the same for Saul. In the blink of an eye, in the flash of light, Saul's life and world history actually is forever changed. Now, before I go any further, just a very brief, like 15 second parentheses here, because there are gonna be times I say Saul, sometimes I say Paul. Saul is the same person as Paul. Saul was a Hebrew, and so the Hebrew form of his name is Saul. When he begins to proclaim the gospel to the Greek-speaking world, he goes by the Greek form of his name, Paul. So Saul is Paul, Paul is Saul, parentheses over. Now, what can we learn from this story today? From this story of this dramatic conversion experience, this supernatural experience that Saul has on the road to Damascus, what does this have to say to us this morning, here and now? I believe what God wants to say to us, what we can learn from this text, is that this is how grace works. This is how grace works. Because there are a lot of different people in this room this morning, watching online, a lot of different stories represented here. And all of our stories are different from each other. Your story is different from mine. My story is different from yours. But when it comes to the grace of God in our lives, how he saves us, how he redeems us, how he intervenes in our life, how he draws us to himself by his grace, at their heart then all of our stories have the same pattern. And we see that pattern in Acts chapter 9 today. This is how grace works. And the first thing we see in verses 1 through 2 is that before Jesus intervenes, we're enemies of God. Look with me at verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters, basically arrest warrants, permission to arrest Christians. Asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. When we first meet Saul in the book of Acts a few chapters earlier, he's described in dramatic terms as, quote, ravaging the church. We read two chapters earlier in Acts chapter seven how at the stoning of Stephen, Saul is watching it, approving of it, and the crowd reveres Saul so much. Fears Saul so much that they lay their garments down at Saul's feet. One chapter later, in chapter 8, verse 3, Saul is described this way. He's He's a terror to the church. It says he's entering house after house, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. Luke uses terrifying language to describe the kind of damage Saul was inflicting upon the early church. So when Luke writes in our text today in verse 1 that Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, it's the same kind of language used elsewhere in the Bible to describe ravaging beasts who are destroying a vineyard or who are ravaging a body. This is the person God's going to use. This is a future apostle. This is the future author of over a quarter of the new testament this is the person who will one day be a martyr for the faith the same person who is the driving spirit behind martyrdom god chooses to save an enemy of god because god always and only saves enemies of god you say that again god chooses to save an enemy of god because god always and only chooses to save enemies of God. Your story and my story are different from Saul's. Most of us, I would hope, I would hope most of us who are Christians, who have a Christian testimony, don't start off sharing our testimony this way. You know, I was once a fire-breathing wild beast intent on destroying the church. I was approving of the execution of an untold number of Christians and I was leading house-by-house search parties to locate and imprison Christians before I raised my hand at Sunday school and gave my life to Christ. (laughs) Our stories are different. But when it comes to the story of God's grace, how God saves us, at the heart of our stories, it's the same pattern of how grace works. And before he saves us, before God saves us, we are enemies of God. We oppose him. We are in rebellion against him and yet he sets his gaze upon us, and yet he loves us first, and yet he chases us down and draws us to himself. These first two verses in our text this morning describe Saul, yes, but they categorize all of us pre-conversion, enemies of God. Saul himself would go on to tell us in his letter to the Roman church and chapter 5, verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. While we were enemies, God reconciled us. So this is how Saul's conversion story begins, it's how Acts chapter 9 begins, and it's how your story and my story begins. We're enemies of God, but enemies of God are redeemed by the grace of God. Dead men and women are raised to life by the resurrection power of God. And as we now see, verse three onward, persecutors of Jesus Christ are saved by the intervention, by the intervention of God. Verse three, now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Now, Lord here doesn't yet indicate that Saul has any recognition that it's God. Lord here is just the word sir. It's just a respectful title. So he's saying, Who are you, sir? And the sir responds, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. This is how grace works. We're enemies of God. We're saved by God saved by God. Now what Saul experiences here what's described for us is not some kind of out of body experience. What he experiences is real. It's real. It's observed by the people around him. It's a real encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. If you have a red letter Bible, these words that Jesus says to Saul, they're in red letters. This is Jesus he's meeting on the road to Damascus. The light that shines upon him is not some sort of Hollywood light. It's the light of Jesus. And he hears God's voice. And the way, it's interesting, the way that Jesus now chooses to break through into Saul's life, the way that Jesus chooses to crack open Saul's hard heart is not to crush him. And it's not even to force him. It's to ask him a question. Saul, 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 Why are you persecuting me? Those executions you've approved of, those arrests, those people you've dragged kicking and screaming out of their houses, you're doing it to me, Saul. Why are you doing this to me? What a question Jesus poses. Jesus asks the best questions. And in this question, Jesus connects Saul persecuting Christians to being the same thing as Saul persecuting Christ. Jesus connects everything to himself. So Saul could later go on to write that in all things, Jesus is preeminent. Jesus connects everything to himself and he doesn't wait for Saul to be ready. Jesus comes to Saul when Jesus is ready. John Stott, in his commentary on this chapter, points out that Saul did not decide for Christ. He was persecuting Christ Christ decided for him and intervened in his life. God saves us while we are still sinners. God draws us to himself while we are his enemies and he does it all by grace. He calls our name, he chases us down, he shines his light Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 that the same God who said in Genesis, let light shine out of darkness, has shown his light into our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God pursued Saul when he was an enemy, a persecutor, a wolf, and he saved him. And God chases you down even when you're an enemy or a rebel or whatever and he calls your name and it's not to crush you and it's not to force you but to draw you by his grace like he did with Saul. One commentator describes the grace of God that we see here, the, the, the way God acts towards Saul here as showing us God's grace as being gradual, gradual, gentle. I love that. God's grace is gradual and gentle. And here's what we mean by that. It means that Jesus works on us over time. We read this passage this morning and it seems like a a sudden thing where all of a sudden Saul is doing what Saul does and it, it happens instantaneously. But God had been working on Saul for decades and decades and decades and drawing him to himself So when Paul encounters Jesus here, something else very interesting happens. Jesus asks him another question. And we know this because as Saul begins his ministry, he tells this story. (laughs) And it's at least two other times in the book of Acts. And at the end of the book of Acts, Paul includes something else that Jesus asked him that Luke left out earlier on in Chapter 9. So Paul says, I fell on the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Jesus said this to Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's interesting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? A goad was a spiked stick that was used to drive cattle or oxen. And so in Bible times, this was a common expression to describe futility, a useless attempt to resist something, to kick against the goads. Jesus had been working on Saul. Think about this with me. Saul witnessed, we know, the execution of Stephen. He was standing right there watching this, approving of it. So Saul would have seen Stephen's face shining like an angel. Saul would have heard Stephen's incredible speech. Saul would have seen Stephen's courageous bravery as he faced his execution. Saul would have heard Stephen say, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So even when Saul was enacting the damage, even when Saul was persecuting the church, even when Saul was a wild beast destroying the body of Christ, even then Jesus was working on him. Jesus is always working on us. He shows us in this way that his grace is gradual and gentle. And in how he demonstrates this grace with us, he shows his patience. Paul would write later in 1 Timothy 1.16 that I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God's grace is gradual and gentle. I love what John Stott says here about this. He says, one can but magnify the grace of God that should have had mercy on such a rabid bigot as Saul of Tarsus, and indeed on such proud, rebellious, and wayward creatures as ourselves. There is no one who is outside the saving reach of God and Jesus Christ. There is no one who is stronger than the power of the resurrection. God showed it to Saul, He can show it in your life. He can show it to your prodigal son. He can show it to your stubborn parent. He can show it to your neighbor, your coworker who's lost. No one is outside the saving reach of Jesus Christ. No one is stronger than the power of the resurrection. Of course, our stories are different from Saul's. For example, most of us are not often traveling on a, actual road to damascus but in the case of god's saving grace he will intervene at some point in our life he will come to you at some point on your road and intervene and he will say to you it's hard to kick against the goads isn't it but in our case his goads are not a spiked stick into our side or into our back in our case The goads are the nails that pierced the hands and the feet and the thorns that pierced the brow and the spear that pierced the side of his son. It's the grace of God demonstrated to us on the cross of Jesus Christ that eventually will knock us onto our spiritual backs. This is how grace works. We're enemies of God, saved by God, Finally, the remainder of our text shows us we're transformed by God. Transformed by God. Now, one of the most sacred traditions that Catherine and I have is Sunday night nachos. Thank you, Mike. I hear that. Amen. Uh, We began this tradition long before we had kids, and we have kept it up faithfully and deliciously, uh, even to, Lord willing, tonight at about 9.30 or so when the house is quiet or quieter, And ideally, while we are devouring our delicious nachos, after our kids have gone to bed or they're on their way, when there's a new episode of it, we will watch Shark Tank. So nachos and Shark Tank. Please don't judge me. I tell you this so that I can explain the transformation that took place in the life of an inventor named Aaron Kraus, who appeared on the show pitching a smiley-faced yellow sponge called Scrub Daddy. And it's a magical sponge. You'll never believe what it does. It turns hard when it's wet and soft when it's not. And I'm going to read this next paragraph to you so you know that I'm not making this up. In 2012, Scrub Daddy appeared on Shark Tank and locked in $200,000 from investor Lori Greiner. In 2015, it hit $50 million in sales. In 2017, it surpassed $100 million in annual revenue. And in 2019, it was valued at over $209 million from rags to riches, thanks to a smiley-faced yellow sponge. We all love good transformation stories like that. But the problem with most, if not all of them, is that they're fleeting. It's a a house renovation that 30 years from now is out of style again. It's lottery winnings that are spent, wasted within five years. It's a a magical yellow sponge uh, that winds up in the trash one day. The world is quite good at generating scrub daddy transformations. But the resurrected man in the blazing light who Saul encountered on the road to Damascus, can generate resurrection transformation. And that's the good news of the gospel that we have to proclaim. We see it this morning in Acts 9, how a wolf becomes a shepherd, how a persecutor becomes an apostle, how a fire-breathing wild beast becomes a minister of Jesus Christ, and we see it in our lives. We see it in our stories. We see it in our own hearts. In this room today, we have... Imagine this. In this room today, we have a whole bunch of formerly dead people. You look good for formerly dead people, by the way. We have been raised to life by the power of Jesus Christ. This is amazing grace. It's amazing grace. It's also shocking grace. It's shocking to our ears. And boy, was it shocking to Ananias when he heard it. Verses 10 through 16, we're read in on a conversation between God and Ananias. He was a Christian living in Damascus. And God tells him in verse 11, rise, go to the street called Straight. Imagine Ananias tracking with God so far. At the house of Judas, look for a man. Okay, Ananias, he's tracking with God. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. You can imagine Saul's jaw. I'm sorry, Ananias is Saul hitting the floor at this point. For behold, he is praying. He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. Ananias, after he picks his jaw up off the floor, then proceeds to inform God of how dangerous this man is. you got to love it in the Bible when people tell God stuff. <laughs> like, he doesn't know it. God responds, in verse 15, go. For, and now get this. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. This is preposterous. This is laughable. From a wild beast destroying and ravaging the church to a chosen instrument, this is the power of the resurrection. This is how mind-bogglingly amazing graces. That in Christ, God transforms a hunter of those who call upon the name to a carrier of the name. That the one whose story of terror began for us this morning in Acts 9-1 with two words, but Saul, would go on to proclaim the gospel to us in his own words in Ephesians 2-4, but God. The only way we get from but Saul to but God is the power of the resurrection. This is real transformation. This is new creation. This isn't scrub daddy transformation. This is the power of the risen Jesus Christ on display. We see it in Saul. We see it all throughout the Bible. We see it in our lives. As we close, look with me at verse 17. This is beautiful. Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you ever needed a picture of the transforming power of the gospel, you have it right here. That what was once laughable, what was once impossible, is now reality. Friends, God decides what's possible. God decides reality. God decides when to intervene and when to shine his light. So how beautiful that the first words Saul ever hears, the first words that Saul ever hears from the lips of a Christian after his conversion are these. Brother Saul. Brother Saul from beast to brother, from wolf to shepherd. This is how grace works. We're enemies of God, saved by God, we're transformed by God. We see this pattern in how the grace of God works in Saul's life, and we see it in our lives. So, if Jesus has called your name and you've answered him, if at some point on the road of your life you've heard him call your name and you've responded, whether it was in a dorm room, Sunday school room, your grandma's kitchen, in a church, somewhere, then give God the praise. The fact that... God intervened in our lives, the fact that he pursued us while we were still sinners, the fact that he drew us to himself when we were still in rebellion, the fact that he loved us first gives us no reason to be proud. It gives us every reason to be humble. It gives us 10,000 reasons to praise. And if Jesus is calling your name and you haven't answered him, then how long will you kick against the goats? Hear Jesus calling your name today. Behold him in his glory. Hear his voice calling to you. And surrender to the hound of heaven who chases you even now. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for the grace you have shown us. What love, what grace, what mercy that while we were still sinners, you came for us to rescue us, to die for us, that you call us by name, that you intervene in our lives. Even when we are in wickedness and sin and rebellion and ignorance, you come to us, you draw us to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Help us to respond to you. And Lord, we pray now for those who are far from you. Pray those who are distant from you. Pray that you would call their names, O Christ. Draw them to yourself. And Lord, for endless days, we will sing praise to the glory of your great name, your great grace. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.